G'day mate, Forty here. So, I was just remembering when I, I moved to Los Angeles in March of 1994 and I just felt like I had so many options. Like, I just saw my life unfolding before me. So, I was just coming out of six years of largely bedridden chronic fatigue syndrome. And now things were opening up. I wanted to break free. I wanted to run to daylight. There are a few things that are as thrilling to me as the open road, particularly an open road with no commitments. So there are a couple of times that I've done that. I've just taken taken the freeway, the one, the one, taken Highway 1 up the coast of California. Uh, one time I made it all the way to Vancouver. Another time I just made it to Coos Bay, Oregon. But without commitments, I just love the open road without commitments. Just I want to break free. Like You give me time. Give me money. I want to drive away. I want to fly away. I want to run to daylight. I want to want to break free. And I love my memories of these various college professors who told me, "Oh, I could be anything I wanted." And my mum said that you know I was going to grow up to do something special for God. And my dad was a star. I wanted to outshine my dad. So in March of 1994, I take the I-5 South from Sacramento. I'm returning to L.A. after five years, and I have a place to stay in Westwood until I get things sorted. I'm friends with Jules Zentner, who is a uh, professor and faculty advisor at UCLA. I was going to stay with him, get things sorted. I had some money in the bank. I had choices. I had dreams. And I had no obligations. I just wanted to explore. And I'm new in, newly uh, converted to Judaism, so I want to explore all the Jewish experiences that L.A. Has, has to offer. So I'm 27 years of age, and I'm thinking about uh, going to work for Dennis Prager. He said that if I came to L.A., he might have work for me. So I thought, okay, that's one option. Another option to return to UCLA. So being on a university campus at age 27, it's not too weird. It's not nearly as weird as being on campus studying at age, uh, <laughs> yes, it's the blowjob dude. But he had a wonderful relationship with him, except for that time when he padded into my room and asked me if I wanted a blowjob. Aside from that, it, it was it was like a great friendship. But like a single invitation for a blowjob, it can just ruin a whole friendship. Uh, I mean, I. I dated a woman, and she said her relationship with her uncle was never the same after he asked her for a blowjob. So, guys, don't let don't let a blowjob come between you and the people you love. So, I feel like the world's my oyster, right? And there just seem to be all these possibilities. I loved going to a reform synagogue, Stephen S. Wise. I went to a great reconstructionist synagogue in Pacific Palisades and in Malibu. I went to wonderful conservative synagogues like Sinai Temple in Westwood and Beth Arm, the corner of Olympic and La Cienega Boulevard. I was going to Orthodox synagogues. And, and then very quickly, just a few weeks into my, my time in L.A., I just felt my options start to dwindle. Like I came here with big dreams. Right? I'm the only person who's come to L.A. with big dreams. And I remember I couldn't exactly articulate what was going on, but have you ever had that sense where kind of your options are dwindling and you can't explain why and you don't know why and you can't really articulate what's happening? You just 
feel like your world is kind of getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And you're only 27 turning, turning 28. And, and I just sense I would not be on the same, same level as my peers for, for very long. All right. So at age 27, I was still on the same level as my peers. Like my peers were starting to get married. They were starting to become established in careers. Right? They were making permanent choices about family and career that was just going to shape the rest of their life. They were getting established as adults. And I sensed that I was nowhere there. And so within six weeks of being in L.A., I learned I wasn't going to get the job working for Dennis Prager. Then I realized I did not want to return to UCLA to study economics. So I thought, oh, I should go look for a job. And then all the jobs were for actors and models. And so I got hooked on the Hollywood culture. At the same time, I'm having a ball exploring Judaism in L.A. And I'm feeling, okay, there's a big conflict between these two worlds of Hollywood and Judaism, even though they're, they're both uh, very, very Jewish. And yeah, eventually I became... The uh, Michelle Tafoya and Aaron Andrews of uh, porn reporting. <laughs> I became the George Will of double penetration. I became the Charles Krauthammer of all-girl gangbangs. I became the the Steve Saylor of interracial porn. <laughs> I became the the Tucker Carlson of the blowjob. So. One of the first significant parting of the ways that I faced when I, I moved to L.A. in 1994 was about my sex life. You know, whichever direction I would go in would, would, be, would be a dramatic diminishing of options. So if I chose to contain my sex life to just one woman, the best way to live a monogamous life for me was going to be within the realm of serious religion. But if I chose not to contain my sex life, then I could just wander indefinitely. On the other hand, if I just wander indefinitely, I could end up like a 55-year-old, you know, just uh, doing solo streams to his iPhone on a, on a Sunday morning. So I had that, that, that haunting fear in 1994 that I'd end up a, a solo streamer to four, four viewers on, on a Sunday morning, opining about what a contender he, he could have been. So I think this is a really common choice. You decide what you want from your sex life, and then most everything else in your life gets sorted. If you choose to commit to one woman, be monogamous, and to raise kids, then in all likelihood you will become or remain religious. But if you want to wander with your sex life, if you want to have a ball, then you're not going to be seriously religious. And the the lack of commitment that you have with your sex life will probably have effects on your personal reputation, your professional reputation, your, your career. So I was having a ball with having a ball. Like my first year in LA was the most promiscuous of my life. I, I slept with about, about 20 different women. A little bit of me sensed, oh, this is, this promiscuity is not really compatible with my best interests, you know, with marriage and children and career and commitments like mortgage. But yeah, okay, promiscuity starts to lose its appeal after three decades, all right? So I didn't consciously choose a life of bawling over non-bawling. I just kept bawling. 
And even though my actual promiscuity pretty much ended by the summer of 1995 from, from here on, it's pretty much all within the context of a, a committed relationship, like kind of the fantasy of bowling just would continue to dominate my life for the next 17 years. And, and with it, there was this, this mounting dread that I was leaving life unlived, that uh, I, was, I was turning my back on the real substance of life, you know, getting married, ha having kids, and... and uh, being like Sid in, in the chat room has got three kids, like a real pillar of the community. Uh, here's a guy that, you know, blokes, blokes live up, look up to. Sid Raganuth. Uh, three blonde hair and blue-eyed kids, more Aryan than any of the alt right in their looks. So, yeah, I think that's one of the first, first commitments that... Uh, people make is you're going to live a life of bawling or non-bawling and then a lot of things then, then follow from that and the second major crossroads I faced was whether or not to be a full-time orthodox Jew so I was surprised my first few years in LA my, my most uh, intense and meaningful and joyful experience of, of Jewish life were in orthodox Judaism in particular at, at the synagogue Asia Torah my life is boring. Well, particularly for addicts, we need to live a life maybe like three notches above boring. But but for people, you drive a hundred accord. For people who are predisposed to addiction, then then most forms of excitement are going to be fairly fairly dangerous for you. <laughs> so, Orthodox Judaism didn't seem as rational to me as other forms of, of Judaism, and they weren't as immediately pleasurable. I love the musical instruments that you'd get at non-Orthodox synagogues on, on Shabbat and just the more options. But I saw Orthodox Jews, by having fewer options in life, they built much more impressive and solid communities where people were much more tightly interconnected with, with other people's lives. And I really admired the people I met in Orthodox Judaism. I saw that the people I admired most in the world were, were Orthodox Jews who settled down, got married, had kids, built a career, built a life within a, a particular community. And I wasn't expecting that, but I just found so many incredibly impressive people within, within Orthodox Judaism. And so I tried to keep a foot in both camps until about year 2000. And then after a trip to Israel, I said, okay, it's just going to be frumkai from here on. I'm just going to go, you know, balls out in, in Orthodox Judaism. And then that choice like, considerably narrowed my life options. Then the, the choice to write a book on the history of sex and film and then a blog after that on the porn industry, that considerably seemed to narrow my options in life because no matter what else I did, I was kind of known as the porn guy, which is not really a great way to go through life. I, that just went like really just kind of seemed to ratchet, ratchet my life down. And the scary thing, so Man City won the Premier League title. So if Liverpool had won today, would Liverpool have won the title? Like, and I think there's part of my psyche, a significant part of my psyche, there's, there's a, a ratchet, right? There's, there's a ratchet that just kind of, in my psyche, that just kind of acts towards making my life smaller and more and more and more and more narrow. So, how would anyone know about the porno stuff? Well, 
I got exposed to it because Dennis Prager recommended these books by Robert Stoller on the dynamics of sexual excitement. And so I read this book and it had a great deal on the porn industry. So I thought, oh, I should be a diligent scholar. Dennis Prager recommends uh, Dr. Robert Stoller, a psychiatrist at UCLA. Let, you know, let me read more of Dr. Robert Stoller's books. And then I read, I read his, you know, so he wrote two books on the porn industry in particular and then other books on the dynamics of sexual excitement. And I was like, oh, wow, this really corresponds with my life experience. I'm really enjoying the dynamics of sexual excitement right now. Let me, let me specialize in the dynamics of sexual excitement. Let me bring a, a Torah perspective to the dynamics of sexual excitement. I can find a niche, right? You have to find a niche as, as uh, someone who makes it, wants to make his life as a, as a commentator or a writer or a pundit, a content creator. How would people know about the porno stuff? It's just known, bro. My, my face is out there. 60 Minutes, Entertainment Tonight. Uh, you're making me sound boastful. LA Times, New York Times, NBC or ABC News, wh whatever. It, it's all over. Like, I'll, I'll, forever, I'll forever know that. Um, yeah, ostensibly, that was, that was narrowing my life down. But the most important thing is that there... No way, Man City were losing 2-0 and they won 3-2 in the final minutes. So if they hadn't won, uh, Liverpool would have won both the Premier League and Liverpool won the FA Cup and they have a chance, right, of winning the, the Champions League. So Liverpool and Man City, definitely the, the two best teams in European soccer over, over the past uh, three years. So fantastic competitions between them. Bro, I didn't know about the porno stuff. I only found you because I was looking at alt-right content. Okay, so, yeah, Liverpool won 2-1. But if uh, Man City had lost, then Liverpool would have won the, the league title. So the excitement of uh, Premier League soccer, that can be dangerous for an addict like me. So I just, I just consume it moderately, a little bit uh, on weekends. So you make these choices, and then you just feel them like, just uh, narrow, narrow your life. But often the real ratchet is inside of your psyche. So there's this ratchet, okay, and you're wondering, what the heck is a ratchet? It's a device consisting of a bar or wheel with a set of angled teeth in which a cog or tooth engages, allowing motion in one direction only. It's a situational process that is perceived to be changing in a series of irreversible steps. Right? It's the cause of something to rise or fall as a step in a steady and irreversible process. So there's, there's a ratchet in my psyche that uh, kind of wants to isolate me so I can live alone in my delusions. So I, I have to recognize it's there, that, that my mind wants to kill me. And if it doesn't kill me, it will, it will make peace with just making me miserable. So my mind is like a dangerous neighborhood that I don't want to enter alone. So when I go to bed at night, I just leave audible books running all night. Now I had 10 hours in bed last night. I think I probably had close to eight hours of sleep. So I am refreshed and energized. Uh, just ha had a great night, but I do leave audible books just running all night so that I'm not alone with my thoughts. So one of the things that, uh, that happened in COVID for me is like, I'm really happy staying home and just reading books all day. Like, and I'd occasionally like get glimmerings of doubt, you know, I need, need to find new ways to connect. But overall, 
you know, overall, uh, like, like COVID kind of suited me, but it also made me recognize that ratchet in my psyche that wants to separate me from others so that I can live a line in, in, in my delusions. Now, one great thing I've learned from 10 years of therapy and 10 years of 12-step program is that I always have more options than I consciously think about. There are always more different directions I can go. There are always more options, right? I, I can, I can, you know, ex always expand my world far beyond what uh, what I'm consciously thinking about. So it's 2022 now. I'm I'm nearly 56, and the chat says I don't think Luke could do a regular job. Well, I am probably more situation dependent than. Most people, like there are certain bosses who I love and they love me. So they give me, they give me, they've given me space. And essentially I've operated as, as an independent contractor. Like I, I certainly don't well, do well with micromanaging, but when I can be an independent contractor, when, when someone wants me to do, do certain things for them and they're not like micromanaging me, but they develop trust in me, I develop trust in them. And then I just go balls out for them, right? So I've had the privilege of some great bosses or uh, great people who are you know, taking me on, on on a contract or independent contractor basis, and I have thrived. On the other hand, in in many normal jobs, I have I have flamed out really quickly. So in normal jobs where people want to be right on top of me, right when they want to it feels like to me micromanage me when they want to you know monitor all my interactions monitor all my emails monitor my every decision i don't do well and i i start to go into some sort of uh negative spiral so yeah i could handle having an office space type job as long as i'm not being constantly managed i, I don't want to be on slack so that people can you know just constantly message me on slack i prefer I don't want to do, you know, secretarial type jobs. I can't do, I could not do an office job th that is mundane because I will not be able to keep my attention on the job and then I'll make a ton of mistakes. Then you'll yell at me and then I'll make more mistakes and I'll feed into a downward spiral. But there are a lot of white collar jobs that are absolutely absorbing. So jobs involving research, uh, jobs involving writing, uh, jobs in involving interviewing, uh, jobs involving investigation, uh, jobs involving analysis, right? That type of work I, I thrive in, right? You, you give me 10,000 pages of documents and I can boil down what's happening into a few sentences. Like that's, that's where my gift is. But you don't want to give me the job of checking the engines before the plane takes off. Imagine enjoying COVID. I, I did because it removed distractions so that I could just be alone with my books and my live streaming <laughs> and uh, teaching some Alexander technique and uh, doing, doing a couple of jobs for people. W-2 is gay. There's nothing wrong with W-2. 90% of people are better suited for a W-2 job than, than any other primary source of income. I think like 95% of people are not suited to be entrepreneurs. With a W-2 job, you don't have to be thinking, right? If you don't have a W-2 job, often you have to be hustling for work. 
And for me, that's extremely inefficient. So I've liked having a guaranteed source of income, right? That's made me really happy. Guaranteed source of income, health insurance, dental insurance, vision insurance, uh, 401k, those type of benefits, along with that, that guaranteed regular income and the, the safety that comes with that. You can get all that and still have what will essentially feel like independent contractor, right? You don't, not all bosses suck. Like a lot of bosses are great and you can form a great relationship with them. It doesn't mean that they become friends, but I've enjoyed great working relationships with bosses where we rolled for years and uh, nary an angry word, good trust between both parties. Luke is the most self-aware person I've ever come across. Economy is collapsing due to the baby boomers retiring, supply chains collapsing, and the moronic policies of Joe Biden. So the other thing with having an office job is that you could be surrounded by great people, right? I've been in offices where I have either loved, liked, or been neutral towards the people there. Now, often it just takes one toxic person to destroy an office environment. But there are lots of offices where there are no toxic people. There are lots of jobs where there are no toxic co-workers. So work can be awesome. A W-2 office job can be awesome. I, I remember Godwood Podcast talked about how, you know, any, any white-collar job is just going to be a form of deception. It's just going to be a form of degeneracy and some kind of scam. And uh, no, I don't think that's right. Uh, Sid says, Luke, I don't think you could do conventional employment anyway. I cannot do conventional employment if it means micromanaging, if it means constantly being at people's beck and call via things like Slack, uh, where I'm just constantly being monitored, like keystroke monitoring, you know, that sort of monitoring. No, I, I do not do well. But if I establish a good trusting relationship with you, there are a lot of uh, conventional jobs that say reward high verbal IQ that I can do well in. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of jobs that are awesome. There are a lot of people out there that are great to hang out with. Like I've gone to jobs where I've really enjoyed seeing people, right? It's been a source of joy to go into work Say hello, reconnect with people, create a shared reality with people, get on the same page with people. Uh, rhythmic, en rhythmic entrapment, rhythmic enchantment, like you're, you're, you're developing a rhythm with, with the people that you're working with and for and sharing a lot of laughs. Uh, yeah, I've had some, some terrific experiences. So work is not inherently grim. Yeah, I don't agree with the fadeless alt-right black pill take on work, that workers are just losers. Yeah, work, work can be awesome, all right? Work can be a happy happiness-inducing thing. It can be uh, invaluable for mental health. If you're going to succeed at work or succeed in making money, generally speaking, if you do it legally and morally, you become attuned to being of service to others. Now, I admit I've had a lifelong problem that... I don't tend to, to wanting to help other people, right? I have to develop certain disciplines. So I can either, either have an intellectually fascinating or challenging, interesting job, 
or I can like the people that I'm working with and around and because I like them, then I become more dedicated to the job. Or sometimes I can form emotional connections that, that draw me into a job or I can reach a level of maturity where I see the benefits of what I'm doing, such as landscape work. At first, it was just incredibly difficult work in 100 degree plus temperatures in Sacramento. It was just like swinging a pick and a shovel, building ditches to, to lay down irrigation pipe. It was the most difficult thing in the world. But then on my third day, fourth day on the job, I met Doug Hanslick, a real estate developer, and he noticed my accent and he kind of acknowledged me and he said oh you know my daughter would love to talk to you she wants to go to australia and that human connection just completely transformed my relationship to landscape work that human connection that i formed with the hanslick family in rockland california it completely transformed my relationship to my job so i came to love my job came to appreciate the flowers appreciate what we could do with lawns and shrubbery and trees so for me, human connection is the most important thing. If I can get human connection, it can transform any any job. Like a 10-mile hike on my own is, is probably going to be fairly challenging, but a 10-mile hike with friends is just an awesome experience. So the most conventional job in the world, if I like the people that I, I'm around, yeah, I'm, I'm totally into it. Yeah, when, when you have a boss who trusts you and, and uh, you have a good relationship with your boss, it just completely transforms the work experience. If people have completed any 12-step recovery particularly suited for any type of work, uh, people who've, you never complete 12-step recovery, but if you've achieved some level of recovery, you'll be less likely to self-destruct with regard to your work. Uh, people susceptible to addictions, right, they're going to have some strong antisocial tendencies until they've achieved a certain level of recovery. And then even even 12-steppers, once they've achieved recovery, they probably won't have the same flexibility and adaptability that most people do. So I tend to be less flexible and less adaptable than the normal person because that's been my reaction to the chaos of my early childhood. So in the chaos inside of me, I have reacted by being you know, extra strict and inflexible in how I interact with, with the world. So I think many addicts, even addicts in recovery are like this. So I just notice, I notice a lot of recovering people in 12-step programs that they're doing just fine in a mundane job with, with, with pay and benefits that meet the needs of them and their families. But when they try to step up into a more demanding job, they get fired every time. So I would suspect that for many people in, in recovery, they are not as flexible and as adaptable as the average person, and therefore they perhaps need to be a little bit more selective about the, the type of job that they take. Because for, for an addict, you need to maintain your emotional equilibrium, and some jobs are going to be much more challenging for your emotional equilibrium. Would 12-step programs benefit men who are addicted to radical politics? Yeah, I think 12-step programs benefit people who are addicted to, to anything. So to get yourself back on some kind of emotional equilibrium so that you can be much more free to make choices without having to live out your self-destructive compulsions. I'm friends with people who are addicted to radical politics. They don't seem sane. Something is missing. Yeah, what's missing 
is that these marginalized people have found a form of excitement and reason for living in radical politics that they did not have before. So just like the person who discovers alcohol and alcohol becomes a solution to all their problems, they lose their shyness, they lose their inability to dance, they lose their their inability to go to bed with women once they have a few drinks in them. So all addictions, whether it's radical politics or alcohol or porn, they start out solving your problems. They start out as adaptations to your problems. They start out making your life better, but then they begin to spiral into maladaptive habits that that uh, send you towards more isolation. So... It's now 2022, I'm turning 56 in a week, and I recognize that I have this like default ratchet in my psyche that, that wants to send me towards isolation, so I have to keep making concrete commitments and, and choices against my grain to go social, to commit to volunteering opportunities, to commit to communities and to being with other people, and most every... Every Sunday these days, I go explore Los Angeles again like it's 1994. So my first uh, couple of years in L.A., I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is so much fun. There's so much here to go look at. Let me try this. Let me try that. And then after two or three years in L.A., my life started getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I started taking L.A. for granted. And I probably didn't go to the beach for like 10 years, even though I live... Uh, 10 miles from from the beach yeah you have to limit your exposure to negatives during the work day don't don't chat me up about a light bulb burning out in your office <laughs> i have other people for that so i'm uh, exploring la again like it's 1994 bye bye